The Big Sell Illuminati, where some of the best in the business discuss what's worked, what's working, and what's failed in selling big sales. Our panel of experts includes Clarity Seeker, a black belt of brands, our snarky marketer, Monique DeMeo. CEO to CEO selling is his game. Fortune 500 in his lane. The Lex Luthor of the clothes, Mark Kennedy. The effective executive, a force on the boards, a buyer on fire, Tiffany Olson. David versus Goliath selling, the prince of process, Sanzu of big sales strategy, Tom Searcy. And that's your panel. Now it's time to talk about big sales. Welcome to episode three of the Big Sale Illuminati. Uh, we're going to talk about getting through the sales noise that's out there right now. There's so much noise in the channel and the marketplace, and everybody sounds the same. Uh, how do we sound different? So we're going to talk about why different works when you're selling. And we're going to talk about when you're talking about as a company, why is your company different? And how do you say it? And how do you say it more quickly? Because the attention span of buyers out there is also short. And finally, we're going to talk about the difference between different and crazy. And somewhere in there, we've all been one of the other. And we're going to spend a little time on stories from crazy town. Uh, so that's going to be uh, what we covered today. I want to start off with why different works. Why, when we're out there and we sound different than our competitors, why does that work? Jump ball. All right. I guess I'll take different it. is better than better. Just say I used to say that different is better than better. Otherwise, you stand for nothing. And I think one of the things is that if you aren't different, then you're in a commodity market where everything and everybody is the same. And the only thing that matters then is price because the buyer can't differentiate one from the other. So I, I you know, it reminded me of a time when I was first moving to Indiana, my family and I, and we were looking for a neighborhood that could really be a community. So my husband was working, I was working, we had two small children, and we looked at a ton of different homes and just as many different communities. So by the time we got done looking, we had a week in which we needed to come in and make the decision. Every place looked the same until the last place that we went into. And that was because when we walked into this home, on the counter was this whole setup of about their neighborhood. So they had the neighborhood newsletter, a neighborhood direct, oh, wow. a list of babysitters in the neighborhood, how to sign up for the swim club. And we knew right then and there, even though the house might not have been perfect, it was the perfect community for us and we and have the map there that says yeah this is the crazy neighbor who's who's uh you got to watch out because he's armed and dangerous and there's <laughs> someone who died in that house over there other than that your kids can go anywhere kids could go anywhere and it was one where we walked in we saw this and we could see ourselves there so what made the difference what was different about this is that they really emphasized and showed and proved that they have this community. Even though others might have been kind of talking about that, here we felt it. And that's really the difference. Yeah. I mean, everybody who's gone through uh, looking for a house becomes numb. You just become numb. At some point, you say, I'll take anything at this price point. 
And it sounds like you were able to get the one that wasn't like that. Um, what else on, on the idea of being different? Uh, because you're right, everybody wants to differentiate or it's just price. Well, the core of it, the core of it is capturing attention. I mean, how do you grab and how do you retain that attention? And, you know, that's the most valuable commodity on earth is getting attention of people that matter in the process. And I, I think that's the real, the real key. I, I actually had a hard time with the the first topic here in terms of what, why different works, because it's kind of so fundamental and so endemic to what we do that it's hard to not do it, but it, <laughs> it's, it's that, that is different. That is get what gets noticed. And I just think the, you know, like I said, the, the basis of it is how do you grab attention and, you know, that's the, the, the truly unique thing for, I think, you know, a, a salesperson, which is what is it that's going to, you know, the combination of what comes out of your personality, what comes out of your strategy, what comes out of your company and your product. You have to bring all those things together in a unique way that can grab the attention of the person that you're trying to capture for a little bit and then bring them into your, you know, into your vortex. I always look for what will keep me away from Satan's children. Satan's children are <laughs> Satan's children. Satan's children are also known as purchasing procurement. procurement yes. All right. And so, and, and so you know, the oh, seventh boy. ring of Dante's Inferno is where they put the procurement people. The thing is, is that if what you're doing goes to procurement directly, it means that you're already being compared on an Excel spreadsheet by some folks that are maybe at, uh, graduated from community college. And they're going ahead running to figure out whether or not you meet up with everybody else. So how do I get out of procurement or purchasing? I have to be something different that they can't put in a little Excel spreadsheet because their mindset is to get you to the Excel spreadsheet. So number one, always when we're looking at helping clients and working through that is how do I stay out of procurement or purchasing. And the only way to do that is to not look like things to get sent to purchasing or procurement. So let's dig deeper into that, Tom. You would suggest to a client that they categorize themselves, if possible, outside in a pre-existing category, for instance. Is that what you're saying? Yes. I always get lumped into, let's say, advertising services. We're not really advertising services, right? So sometimes that box doesn't exist. So you want to create your own. That's the takeaway. Yeah, I mean, you're a yield agency right? Your job is to produce a yield based upon a variety of tools. And, you know, the complex effort is an integrated marketing approach. It doesn't just say, I'm going to go buy advertising for you, or we're going to right. print off banners or whatever. So when people start uh, talking about yield, they're immediately considered a bit different than traditional advertising. So, and I'm just, I'm constantly, you know, I'm, putting out there, you're much better at going ahead and talking about your business. I'm just saying that yeah, you cannot true. look uh, like other people. You do, then guess what? You get to sit at the dinner table of the Excel spreadsheet, you know, and in the middle of it, right, um, we're splitting up the checks and we're trying to figure out who has to go ahead and pay for the drinks. Um, so I was looking for uh, a metaphor that Mark would understand. And I just, uh, I fell apart on that. So what would you throw in that as far as looking, you, you got to pique the interest. And so what do buyers look like? Uh, you know, I'm going to throw that at Tiffany. What do buyers look for uh, in creating the, the, the difference? Really s s 
someone or who they're representing, the company, that really stands out, that is instantly gets the trust, instantly understands and is able to really to message to what the need is. So it cuts through all of the other noise and just really gets to what that particular need is. So for me as a buyer, I, I, I'm busy. I need to have something that's very succinct, something that cuts through a lot of the flowery things and then just really hones in on, on my particular need. I, I know of a deal that you did, um, which was a big deal. And step number one was to take everything that everybody was going to be on that executive or was going to be on that Excel spreadsheet. And you knew all the categories that were going to be on there. And he simply said about everybody else who was on the list, this is table stakes. If people tell you that they can do that, there's a minimum threshold. And once they've achieved that, you don't have to be any bigger than that. So throw that out, throw everybody who ought to all they have out. And you need to be talking about just, you know, someone who can offer you something other than that, because everybody else was in a foot race. You know, my service is as good as their service or a little bit more, or my product is as good as there or a little bit more. And they're all on an Excel spreadsheet. And the, the answer is, is wait a minute, if, as long as you can hit an eight, 80% on all of these people, you can buy from them, right? Any one of them. But that's not what you need. You need this other 10% over here. So kill off all your competitors by making them the same, saying that they're all the same. And then you drop in, you know, in Tiffany's case, she went from 19 competitors to four by saying to the, uh, the buyer, 15 of these guys are all the same and it doesn't matter. Buy from any of them if you think that's the problem. Kill them off but in a I nice, see. safe way. <laughs> yes. And, and the whole premise behind that and why it was successful is because we were able to differentiate ourselves that 10% that is different and that's going to make the difference for that customer. Monique, you and I had some back channel uh, discussion of this this week. And uh, I like some of the things that you were saying about this whole idea. Because right? remember, we said you got you to say it and you got to say it relatively quickly. Well, do you want to talk about like how companies have a choice about how they want to position themselves? Do you want to go into yeah, that a little bit? Yeah, let's talk about that. I mean, yeah, you know, people underestimate, I think, tone, manner, voice, you know, uh, just the way you show up and just the way you describe yourself. You know, I had um, for for those of you who haven't seen it and for those of you who are just listening, we're going to drop this into the show notes. But um, an example of how, you know, a, a same company can describe themselves literally. Right. So this company could say something very technical like, with its industry-leading, you know, massively scalable technology, our web services platform delivers exceptional performance and reliability under the most demanding and highly variable conditions. Okay, great. Or you could say our web services platform delivers 99% uptime and adapts to changing loads in less than a second. That's factual. It's concise. It's a little more to the point. Or you could be really non-technical and informal and say web services that you could set and forget. This is the same company, guys. I mean, you know, even within the voice and the tone and the description of what you use for your company, you can differentiate. You don't even have to get into that room and start knocking people off if they understand what you're about. Um, and then you can knock people off. But the point is, 
you know, use that to your advantage, but also understand who you're talking to. The technical buyer may prefer one, but if you know as a as a point of fact that you're going to be talking to C-suite executives that don't have time to delve under jargon, maybe you go with something shorter, sweeter, crisper, and then you, you know, you, you play the Tiffany game, which she's very, very good at and can teach all of us how to play. You know, Monique, one of the things that I really liked about that is the differentiation of the message depending on the customer. And if you're able to segment your customers, whether they be a transactional buyer, an economic buyer, a technical buyer, whatever that may be, then you can really tailor that message. Because as you said, same company, different messages. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And, and, and you know, you being a C-suite buyer, you, you know, you may have a preference the way you're wired, the way you think, the way you would approach a deal. So already if you, if the, the seller is doing their homework and understanding what, how the, their buyers are wired, they have to tailor those communications. Don't you think that too different though is bad? Like, I think there's a degree to which mm-hmm. you're trying to mm-hmm. differentiate. And I know, you know, you talk about the, the 10% that matters, but you know, the, the person that you're selling to always has to be able to turn around and I mean, the sales process is an educational process that that teaches the person you're selling to to be able to explain it to the other people. Yes. Like I'm always I'm talking to the chief marketing officer. I'm really talking to the chief financial officer. And I'm teaching that person how to how to have that conversation. I, I think that that's an area where people try to differentiate too much and it's bad. Mm. You know, I've, I've fallen into this trap, too, because I've done a bunch of bunch of kind of wacky entrepreneurial companies where you try to even create these, like these guys, these folks will get in these rooms and they'll start, you know, spinning up differentiation and they'll get into this trap. I call it the invented language trap. When you start to like, (laughs) they'll use, they'll use wacky made up terms for standard industrial like language. I'm like, wait a minute, we've gone into crazy town here. And uh, I think those are, those are areas where in the sales, you know, as a salesperson, you swing back and forth. You're like, okay, how much different is too different? And then have we entered into wacky town in terms of like the language we're using that confuses people? And I'm sure Tiffany runs across that all the time. Yeah, IT in general, which is I think everyone in IT makes up their own language. I went and I had to buy a dongle for those that might or might not be familiar with that term. I'm like, who makes up these words? I I don't know. But every time I hear a new one, it just means ching, ching. It's more money that you've got to you've got to uh, lay out there. You have to ask yourself how many dongles you need. <laughs> a lot, apparently. Yeah. <laughs> so many places to go with that. So many places. Anyway, but to Mark's point, it's true if you're, you know, if you're in the space of creating language and also making claims. I think there's a, there's a fine line between, you know, making a, a differentiated claim and making a claim that the buyer is then going to automatically doubt. Like, you know, whether it's a tech stack or something that's going to yield something that is a result that they've never heard some other seller profess possible, you're already in the space of, should we even trust, listen to, consider this solution? Because we didn't know that thing outcome was possible. So I think your point is well taken, Mark. I'm at least taking an angle on Mark. I may not be disagreeing with him, but so... I think that there's a little bit benefit in shock and awe. And since we all know each other, you've probably got a sense that shock and awe is kind of, I want to consider it a specialty. But the point being is, is I've got to develop a, a company who's building facilities for a developer. 
typical multi-use, you know, ground floor retail, uh, next floor up office above that, uh, either hotel or uh, residential multi-use space. So you come in as uh, to a developer and you say to him, I can build this for you and et cetera. But then you say, here's what our approach is going to be. We're going to build first line is actually with the intention of getting that rented out. But for you, we want to get, we're going to skip level two and go to level threes and above. Why? Because that's going to be the apartments or the hotels. And that's what's going to generate the revenue for you, the developer. So all you're looking for is a building and a construction methodology that will allow you to build in ways in which revenue can be generated along the way based upon percentage of people who are going to be attending. Now, it's still uh, you're still the best um, construction company, but you're not talking about construction. You got a developer. What's a developer want? Developer wants tenants. And that conversation dramatically changed because you're still building the same building, but in a way or in a sweet sequence. And that changed everything for the conversation. A little bit of shock and awe, definitely a demonstration that you understand in this uh, uh, statements uh, that have been made so far, that you understand the business. And uh, Mark's always selling past whoever to the CFO. Yeah, that's great. So you've commoditized the whole construction process and now you're talking about a business deal. So it's a different, it's a very different conversation. That's super smart. I bet you taught them how to do that, huh, Tom? You know, it did happen that way, but, but again, <laughs> but it, it does always start off with the money, right? Who's got the money and why are they motivated to do it? The developer was trying at first to reduce the cost of the building rather than increase the speed to the revenue. And that's where, uh, and that's where everybody else was talking. I can outbid you, you know, I can go ahead and decrease it by a hundred grand on it. $25 million building. Well, we can be a hundred grand less. Really? That's fan. That's fantastic. You know? Uh, no. So you got to change. That's a, I don't know if I call that shocking off, but it definitely was a differentiation. Aren't there kind of two variables anyway? It's time to money and time to market. I mean, kind of, you know, that people are going to be concerned about top. You always say, if you're not talking about money, you're not talking about anything. Didn't you just, you said that to us a couple of times. It, it, because it, here's the thing. All, we all know that if you're selling a big deal, you're going to wind up at the CFO level. I mean, at some point, somebody's got to write a check and it's going to come out of the CFO and the CFO has the rubber stamp. That's the other part of the process that we believe in. I want to get the CFO in early and I want to understand what level of language that CFO is talking about as far as money because they have their own KPIs. Sometimes it's margin. Sometimes it's capital. Uh, invested. I mean, you've got to find out what that's going to be. And that's why you have to go talk to the CFO. You can't talk to other people who are just including the sons and daughters of Satan. You don't want to talk to them. Uh, I know, I'm telling you right now, we're not bleeping that out because I, I have been on record about my affection for people in procurement purchasing. Yeah. We just had a whole bunch of people opt out of this particular uh, program. There's, there's a thing that comes out and it's called the reptilian brain. Is anybody familiar with the reptilian brain? Yeah. Who wants to grab a hold of that reptilian brain? Because I think this is where that issue of differentiation versus similarity is what peaks interest. So, you know, it, it's got a branding problem. Yeah. Which one, which one of you wants to be a reptile? I mean, it's a tough call. I'm going to do the alligator arms. <laughs> <laughs> 
I don't want it. I don't want it. My son tells me I have T-Rex arms and he does that. He's like, okay. He's like, thanks. Hi, I love you. I get great joy out of the fact that at the very base of the human existence is this thing that just processes autonomously and that it's always making the judgment whether you want to run, fight, eat, or fuck. I think that's just fabulous. <laughs> I, I like the fact that every interaction I have is it's somehow deeply involved in those four things. It just gives me great joy. <laughs> so funny. Yeah. Well, again, you've got to figure out. You have to pique their interest, but <clears throat> that list right there provides a variety of ways to pique their interest. We're going to try and keep it on the commercial level. All right. So <laughs> yeah, probably, probably a good idea. You're right, though. You are right. The rept- and it is the reptilian brain. It's that part that gets you know our immediate reaction right um, before we try and process it at a at a calculated level or some sort of commercial benefit level. Um, I don't know if Monique is going to be able to top your uh, answer, but she was about to give one. Definitely Um, not. Definitely not. Though I used to tell my son that the average man is really only concerned about three things and they all have different formulas for those three things. I need a pen. So, yeah. So it's sports, food, and sex. And some men are like, you know, 75% sex, 10%, you know, sports, 5% food. Some are, you know, 75% food, 10%. It depends on the guy, but basically those are the three motivators. And he just nailed it for me. I love you. Do you think maybe you could be 300%, 100% of each of all three of those? Possibly, you know, you could be 300%. No, no. No, but I I mean, I think the whole thing about the neocortex, the rational brain, the limbic and the emotional and the reptilian or survival brain are really fascinating. I, um, not a shameless plug, but I sat sat in on a workshop um, that they did for us at Vistage by a gentleman by the name of Patrick Renvoise. And I'm going to spell it because he, like myself, is a frog. Um, so Patrick Renvoise is R-E-N-V-O-I-S-E. And he's got a, a website by the name of, ironically or coincidentally, salesbrain.com. He's really good. And he talks about how, you know, the neocortex of the rational brain, only humans and some primates have this brain. It's the most evolved part in logic, learning, language, all that stuff, conscious thought. And to your point, buyers don't operate in that space. They think they do, and they might do triage on vendors based on this neocortex or rational. But then your limbic and emotional brain gets in there, and only mammals have that. And they're responsible for our emotions, our memory, our moods, all that stuff. But ultimately, the reptilian, the survival brain, is the one that's making the decisions. And that's the one that's like, controlling survival functions like hunger, breathing, and all the rest of that good stuff. So his whole methodology is how to get the sales conversation to trigger your reptilian brain because now you're in fight, flight, or fight mode, whatever you are, and you're now making a decision like this vendor is going to get me to that benefit. They just touched my sales because of the sales button in your brain. It's really fascinating. So he talks about differentiating so that you have emotional response, not logical response. It's pretty cool. And I've seen, uh, I've seen him speak. I agree with you. The, the thing about it is you've got to peak the interest. How do you grab, I mean, how do you grab, you got a, an alligator who's sitting in the water or uh, a reptilian creature who's sitting in the water or in the trees or in the whatever, they're going to disregard all that that is familiar and similar in their environment. So you've got in some way get them, as you said, peeked into um, their attention. Otherwise, they're not moving with any interest in any particular direction. 
in the in the 70 30 uh, 70 20 10 ratio regardless of category i uh, i know that mine has changed as i've gotten older yeah of course yeah no kidding i like a good pot roast so <laughs> <laughs> let me ask this question let's move forward a little bit what's different for your company when you're selling and how do you sell and this is for anybody who's watching that not your company right now but how does anybody do that and how do you say it quickly I, lo- I loved yours at the very end uh monique on the uh set it and forget it that's a very that's a very quick way of peaking interest um it's not the end of a conversation it's the beginning one you're you're grabbing a hold of their attention that's the point of being different um is to earn the right uh you're earning the right to be heard in a deeper and, and larger way so you said that quickly how else have you seen it said quickly um along the way uh, in, in the things that you've done, anybody who's on uh, the mic right now. I recently actually did a learning seminar and it was for leaders specifically, not sales, but definitely useful in sales. And I had the participants practice their elevator speech. So this is how you say it quickly. And the one that I was working with them on was specific to practicing their leadership values and how it applies in their business but you could do this for selling also. So the quick elevator speech, you can customize it if you know the type of individual that you're going to meet with, but it's all about grabbing their attention. So for example, a friend of mine sells large capital equipment and he could say, you know, we're the most experienced in this area, 150 years of business, which means when we install, we've seen it all. Nothing surprises us. We take the risk. And importantly, manage through it. On time, on budget. Boom, you're on the fourth floor. Got a little bit more time, but our customers really tell us what sets us apart is our customized payment plan. With credit, install payments will customize what works for you. You don't have to use your own line of credit at your bank. So I think you've got I think you've got three independent uh messages that you've got there you would peak my depending upon who i was in that elevator right you would peak my interest i love what you said out of the gate i love what you said in the middle and then if i get a cfo and i trap them in a corner and go ahead and hit the emergency uh, uh stop then you could go ahead and explain it to them because they move very they move very slowly they need to they really need to process the information yeah this also is great at parties so think of also a cocktail party with, with a very short your elevator speech. And it could be on your personal life. That's actually a little bit of what uh, I was teaching in this class, which is make it short. If somebody says, hey, what do you do? Have your elevator speech. So this is something that I think is really important because it's not about talking faster to get that message out quickly. No, no, you're it's right. It's about talking succinctly. I know that you do this all the time, uh, Mark, as far as uh, these go. And I know some of your stories about uh, uh, the, the fast uh, the fast conversations. Or I'm sorry, the, the peaking, you know, how do you peak the interest where you go, I'm going to say something you're not used to hearing. So yeah, Mark, one of those. Definitely, definitely have developed a, a shtick, especially with uh, <laughs> now. <laughs> so the, the company I'm, I run now is, uh, it's got some broad ambitions. I mean, it, it aims to flank the traditional advertising industry in a similar way that Amazon flanked traditional retail. And we do that by trying to get 
senior marketing executives confront the fact that the traditional audience engagement model, the peso model, paid, earned, shared, and owned, is fundamentally broken and actually fundamentally backwards. And I, I get them moving very quickly with a couple of simple, like very, very interesting questions that that challenge their their both professional strategies and personal behaviors. So what I'll say is I'll say, when was the last time you knowingly clicked on a paid search ad mm. or a banner ad or whatever, like any any form of digital engagement advertising? And I'll say, uh, I say knowingly because I, I know how you yes. people are with economic terrorism and um, clicking on your competitors' ads and charging them six bucks, right? And they'll say, well, well, I, I, I wouldn't or I don't. Or you know, with a banner ad, they'll say it's been 15 years, right? And, they'll, and I'll say, well, why is that? And they'll say, well, it's because I'm being advertised to. And I say, don't you think it's ironic that your personal behavior is diametrically opposed to your professional or acquisition strategy? And then they just, they're like, oh, you can just see them. They're like, like, damn it, you got me. <laughs> that was brilliant. That's my favorite. That's, brilliant. Little, that's my favorite. That's brilliant. That thing is probably sold close to $100 million in what we do. I mean, it's, it's insane. Just that, like that brings them in and that gives me the right to do the rest of the stuff that I do. So then what do you follow that up with? What's the, like, what's the, so for the, for the benefits of the audience here, what happens after that? They have their, their jaws on the floor. They're looking at you like, damn it, dude. There, there's some things that, that, that kind of go with that. So when you, when you hit somebody with that, you've, you've kind of destabilized. And of course, I, sell, I literally sell almost exclusively to chief marketing officers and people that are head of performance marketing. And these are senior, senior executives, incredibly well-educated. We're talking, you know, Harvard and Stanford and MIT and, all, and Wharton. I mean, I, I, you, can, you, you can't throw a dead cat in my business without hitting a Wharton grad. And they're very analytic because it's the, it's the data side of performance marketing. And um, so what I have to be very careful of, and this is one of those things that I've learned, like when you write these insights down over time, and that is the more vulnerable you need someone to be, because I'm my I'm in the changing your frame of reference business. I need to change the way, like you're a, if you're a chief marketing officer today, you were a brand manager pre-2006, and 2006 was when two destabilizing things happened to marketers. The iPhone was launched, and uh, Netflix was launched. So now you've got everything in the world in the palm of your hand, and you've broken the traditional broadcast audience model for television. So you became asynchronous with how you communicate to big audiences. And um, so when I have to destabilize someone's entire strategy for what they think they know about audience engagement, that's a small room conversation. I need you to be vulnerable because as soon as your direct reports are in the room and I put that in your lap, you're going to fight. Even if you think you're, even if you think I'm right, you're still going to fight. So I always tell people that, you know, Tom, this is one of the the weaknesses of the hunt big sales model. Actually, it's not really, but where people have to understand the nuance of how it works, which is the concept of executive sponsorship is super intimate. That has to happen between two people. And from that point forward, you can expand your buyer's table. You can expand, you can, you know, expand the boat of people that you bring on board. But when you are creating the foundation of those large, really industry shaping deals, you have to do it in a very, very small room where you won't get the level of intimacy that drives up the deal. And then the second thing I have is I've got this great, this great little, this great little um, hokey story I tell. And it drives the guy that guys that own my company crazy because it always works. And we talked about. <laughs> 
Yeah, you because know, if you think about today, the world, if you if you make the argument that the peso model is broken, what you have to say is, well, you know, you're paying to interrupt people and that's annoying. It's becoming, you know, when you when you look at the privacy data rights and all those things that are happening now, the end of third party cookies, like people don't want to be interrupted and they're starting to treat it more as a brand tax. And I'm, you know, Monique, you know, way more, way more about this than I do. But um, mm-hmm. what's happening is, is people only really want to be advertised to or communicated to when they're in market. And you declare you're in market by a number of different ways. But um, what I always say is I say, you know, if you're trying to find new customers, it's, I like I kind of think it's like fishing. And I say I say to these people, I said, if you're going to go fishing, what's the most important thing you have to have if you want to go fishing? And everybody says what? They say, well, we have to have bait or we need tackle. We need a hook. We need a rod. We need some people want beer. You know, some people, some people want sunscreen. They want a hat. They want whatever. And I say all those things are really important. But the most important thing is fish. In my business, I tell you where the fish are and I tell you who they are and what they are. And I give them to you. I'm in the I'm in the bringing your fish. Business. And they're like, <laughs> are you for real? I'm like, I'm so for real. You won't even believe what's going to happen. And then I'll. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm, I, I feel like I want to jump in on this because Mark said, take a, take a look at this. My short message is because we, we operate in a 10 to $250 million, uh, uh, typically privately owned, but not always privately owned businesses, right? And so my question, so I ask a question, which is, um, are you trying to double your business in the next three years? Uh, and, uh, and they'd say yes or no. And I said, okay, uh, your average sale, uh, we've got a way to get that between five and 10 times the size of your average sale. That effing question probably has probably cost me $5 million. <laughs> <laughs> How so? Literally. Ah, oh, that it pisses me All off. Right, tell, yeah. tell us this. Come on, How guys. So? Spill. Spill. We need, yeah. to, we need some stuff here. The, the version of the fish is do you want to double, your, do you want to double size your sale or size of your company? So that one right there says, do I, no one's asked me, do I want to double the size of my company? I mean, I do, I think about it, whatever. It's the peaking of the interest, right? And then I have to say some version of five to 10 times the size of your current average sale. Or I have to say, do you think you're going to get that by catching a lot of little deals so that every day you've got to go ahead and catch lots and lots of deals? Or would it be easier? If you could figure out how to catch fewer number, but larger deals. And that's uh, that you can cover all of that in uh, an elevator ride. Now, it's 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 got to be from like the 19th or 21st floor. I mean, you're not going to cover that from floor one to floor two, but you can cover it in that period of time. And yeah, Mark's answer is, is hey, I, I want to double the size of my company. I know the big sale is a smarter thing than a smaller sale. so. Um, it's just math um, at that point. And the tone is one of confidence and curiosity, which you talked about. Monique, you talked about tone uh, matters. Tone is a piece of that. Like there's, there's a book to be written out there around if you're, it's, it's the, the upper limit, specifically on services businesses, but a bunch of businesses in general, and probably the predominance of B2B companies, the size of your business is, got to be a direct derivative of the median deal price that you're able to drive. I, I know that's my own business. I've gone through services business where my average deal prices were, you know, in the tens of thousands versus the hundreds of thousands and the hundreds of thousands of business blew, grew up like crazy. 
And right now, I'm in, you know, we're in tens of su- tens that size, but it's it's 100% true because it's the degree to which your customers ultimately trust you and the, the amount of, you know, the solution you can actually provide. That's a, that's a good way to look at it. So that, that would, that would cause me to have a logical conversation with you. And then now you're emotionally engaging me as well, because now you're telling me I could triple the size of my company based on my average deal size. It's sort of like saying, you're the, I, you're the, what is it? The aggregated IQ of the three people that you spend the most time with. Did you hear that one? You guys, did you hear about that? Well, I hope it's okay. Yeah. That's the newest thing. People I'm, are in talking trouble. About. I'm in trouble. <laughs> Yeah, I'm spent. I had time with you guys. I gotta go up. I gotta go up market. I mean, you know, see if I can't get some smarter people. <clears throat> but Monique, I'm gonna go back to when you sold to my company, um, and uh, it was yield. You went to yield very quickly. You said, you know, you you discounted everything. Look, we can do advertising. We can do website. We can do all the rest of these things. But what do you really want? Because I think and this was your statement. I think you want yield. You want to get more of X. And you were the first person who said yield was the driver of the conversation. And you had you had me right then. Like, oh, she's speaking my language. She understands what I care about. And you said yield. And that's a very short statement that piqued my interest. So well, it piqued you. Your interest, it may not peak another buyer, right? If I was talking to Tiffany, that might not be her KPI or her right. force or her limbic brain might not be lit up by yield. She might be all about, you know, something else or acquiring customers in a new vertical that they're, you know, that they've got some goals around. So that would be a different conversation, right? So it would be, we yeah. can get to what you want as opposed to, I'm going to sell you what I have. That never works. But this goes back to what we were talking about earlier. You're eliminating everything. You're demonstrating expertise by eliminating everything else that your competitors might say. And then you realize, you know, you, by, by whatever your specialty is, which might be reading tone or language or visual or whatever, you were able to drive right to that. And I agree. I think that if you were talking to anybody else, you would ask serious questions. And then you would drive to whatever theirs is. And it might not be, like you said, it might not be yield. It may be some other KPI, but you got us. We understood. And I think the other thing about that is, you know, I think we're all in agreement on that is it's okay not to be everybody's friend, right? So, I mean, Mark can go in. I'm sure he's pissed off a couple of CMOs who now have realized that they're stupider than they thought they were after that he walked in the room. So now they think they're, you know, Miss Hati Tati Wharton grad and he walks in and now they're just idiots. I have to think that maybe he pissed them a couple off, but they have, he's got their attention and their respect immediately. Oh, and yeah. that already. I, I also have the advantage of my business of it's a very like the data in my business is very public. So they can wax on all day about how smart <laughs> their teams are and what they're good at. I'm like, it says here you're fifth in market share and you're losing out to someone a third your size. Like what's going on? Like it doesn't what you're saying and what you're doing. Those two things aren't together. So you be as mad as you want at me. The, the worst I ever did, though, Tom, Tom, oh, my God. So Tom and I've had a couple of hijinks. And this is it does bleed. This bleeds a little bit into the next one where you get into the lackey. But the worst thing I ever did was to close up for my previous company, which did e-commerce system integration. Like the biggest deal we ever uh, the biggest deal we closed that, that was relevant was a company in Atlanta. It was an awesome company. It reminded me a little bit of what Tiffany was saying about the um, 
heavy equipment servicing business. There are so many companies that are finance companies masquerading as other things. I mean, there's so many businesses that are like that. And this is one that I wish I had invented. It was a company that did payroll deduction um, to sell like stuff. And it was basically uh, like it was a yes. purchasing program and started out oh, yeah. with two guys that were, you know, two dorky guys in their garage who wanted to build computers, who couldn't find out, figure out a way to sell them. So they went to the local school district and they convinced the school to sell teachers computers and do it through payroll deduction. And that was literally how the whole thing started. The industry is called imputed interest lending, which is an awesome thing because it is on the very lunatic fringe of being a regulated financial industry, but it's not. So if you say the, the B word in there, deep in the bowels of this organization, there's a guy named Alex who knew exactly what they did. The, the two guys that started the business had no idea what they did. They just knew that people wanted it and it started to grow. And then eventually they got sophisticated. They're so sophisticated that Goldman Sachs gives them $500 million line of credit. So these guys, I'm in there and they were selling, they're growing leaps and bounds. And they, you know they can't fulfill their orders. Their e-commerce systems were all homegrown. And I came in with SAP and we're sold in this big program. And my closing line was, as I said, fellas, because it was all guys at the time in the room, I said, fellas, I've come here today with bags of money, and I just want to see who's smart enough to pick them up. <laughs> they threw me and out of the get their attention. That is an attention grabber. They said, get the f*** out of here. I'm like, okay, but you'll call me back. And I just get. <laughs> but I had to sign contract two days later. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, I think part of that goes to earning that respect, though, uh, to be able to go in and make those type of bold statements, because obviously you had the respect, you had the knowledge, and you had their own data that you could use to compare them to their competition. And that benchmarking is so important. Uh, by the way, what you just said is exactly right. Yeah. That benchmark, because if you're dealing with executives and you can show they're lagging their peers with valid data that they can't refute, it is so powerful to get them to move. Well, then again, this is this is back to, wait, so what Mark just said is now you're kind of like infringing on their manhood. Like, do you know that Joe running ABC company that competes with you is kicking your ass? And all of a sudden he's like alpha male, you know, like, oh, I'm not going <laughs> to let Joe kick my ass. I'm going to be the guy. It was, it's funny. I mean, you literally see like, you literally see them like puff their chest and be like, I remember talking to a, a CEO of a, ba of a bank, that a regional bank here. And he had the same reaction. I was like, you know, XYZ bank, you know, is, this is, this is the data that we came in with. I can't believe John is doing that. Like I was, it was so primal. I was losing it. So it's time to go to crazy town. And if we're going to start with Crazy Town, we're going to start with Tiffany because she lives in Crazy Town. <laughs> That's not true. I, I, but I know some of her Crazy Town stories. And she's had to do some uh, odd kind of things over time or frame things in a different time in with people that are not used to having things framed in a different way. These are people that, that are a little bit puffy, stuffy, and highly regulated. So I put you on the, the spot there. You did. And... Yeah. And Tom, this is a story that I haven't told you before. So this, this is a new one. So my very first job out of college was selling pharmaceuticals. And I had the glamour states of Minnesota, Wisconsin, and Iowa. Many people wanted them. Only the hardiest of us were actually able to sell in that area. But I was working for a pharmaceutical company. One of our products was a ear infection product 
uh, really sold well in the pediatric market. And one of the reps on the team would walk into the hospital to talk to doctors and he'd put on this big ear, this huge ear, and he would walk in wearing that. <laughs> he'd, he'd be like, hey, I've got this great product. And, you know, it, it was it was him because he was at that level of, of just, you know, being very comfortable and being very outward on anybody else. It would have been crazy. They would have walked him right over to the lockdown unit in the hospital. But for him, it did work. And crazy is one of those things. If you can incorporate it into your personality, if you, if I did that, they would have locked me up because that's just not me whatsoever. (laughs) And I would have been able to carry it off. But when you get on that fringe of, uh, where you're really kind of pushing those boundaries. It's different. It's memorable, but it also has to be credible. So he was able to kind of do both, brighten up people's day with something rather silly, but he had knowledge and he had the credibility. I love that. That's a great crazy town story Um, because it piques the interest and it does all the rest of that stuff. And, you know, Crazy cells, being different than somebody else. I've, I've got a, I've got a crazy town story. I wound up uh, speaking uh, in front of a group of CEOs. I've done this a hundred times, and I get bored, and so I wind up, I want, I do, I wind up. You know, it's one of those things where you're giving the same speech and you're trying to get excited, and etc. And you're trying to get off of the pharmaceuticals yourself. So you've gone ahead and decided <laughs> to go in. <laughs> you decided to go in cold. Um, and I just said at the very, hey, listen, we're going to talk about doubling the size of your business. Is there anywhere here of anybody who does not want to double the size of their business? Just raise your hand. And about half a dozen said, they know. I said, you can leave now. No, I'm serious. All we're going to talk about is double size of your business. Why don't you go make phone calls or do something that's interesting for you? There's a coffee shop down uh, the street or whatever. But I mean, if you don't want to double size your business, that's all I'm going to talk about. And I said, so do you want to change? Anybody wants to change their mind? All right. About, you know, the size of their business. And it, like they all did because they didn't want to be looking around at anybody else and saying, no, I'd like to have my business suck for three years. So <laughs> that, that I because the thing is, is that, you know, you've got to grab their intent. Why am I here? Mark talked about it one an episode or two ago. And we're going to talk about this at some other point about executive intent and the need for that. And if you can't grab executive intent or find out executive intent, it's really hard to move forward. I'm not sure. Mark told his, uh, Mark told his uh, bags of money. Uh, I like the way that ended. It worked. It right? worked. So yeah, it, it worked. worked. Yeah. So at the end, it I'm worked. I'm not sure. Like, you know, to come back to that, I don't know that Tiffany and I, or I could pull that off for a lot of different re- I mean, You've got crazy town stories. What you know? I don't have crazy town stories. I'm boring. No, I mean I've got crazy town stories in the industry, but not. My, I don't. I don't know. But I'm just saying, like this is something that you, he has the presence, and he had he. You got to work with what you got to work with what works for you. I think that I can't. Um, you know, my stature, my gender, all of those things, kind of like can have an impact. Let's be reasonable here, people. We have an audience and we have to be authentic. I can't pull off a mark. I think as I've like gotten that. older, I've become a caricature of myself. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, well, my part, my business partner and I say that our filter is, is, is disappearing year over year. Yeah. 
yeah, at an exponential does. rate. It does. it does. It's amazing. Like I don't give a beep. Well, that's, I mean, that's a very human psychological condition, right? As you get older, you seek to become more of your authentic self. I think that's true. Right. And yes. what's great about it is, is, as long as you're not like, you know, completely nuts or Charles Manson or something like that, that, that tends to be a very authentic thing. People people enjoy that. They're gravitated to that. Yeah. So what Tom actually helped me with one, uh, gosh, it was probably six or, no, nah, it was probably about a year ago. And we were, we were trying to close a deal with a big life insurance company actually multi-line insurer that sells through uh, like group plans. And I had, we had this fantastic deal set up and it was like a, an eight for one return. Everything was right. Chief marketing officer was also a former customer and um, like just everything was right. And I, for the love of God, I, I, I give him these, you know, the deals teed up, everything's ready to go. Nothing like dead silence for a couple of weeks. And you know, these folks are busy. I mean, they've got a million priorities in there dealing with shareholders and they're dealing with their CEOs and all that stuff. So Tom's like, I'm like, what do I do? Tom goes, he goes, give them this line. So I typed the line, I typed the line and we, and by the way, text the, the secret, the secret, there is a secret for communicating effectively on a professional personal level with a C-suite person is text. I, as we do all, like we have a big, we have like a big channel or uh, basically network of these folks. All the outbound stuff is all via text. They that's what they, they respond to. Even though there's too many emails in their inbox, there are too many people. Like their phone is in their hand, they get a text. But anyways, that's an aside. So the but the the, the actual line was when I send you a, a deal that's going to put for every dollar you give me, you give me. I'm going to give you eight back. I expect a check, not a brush off. Literally, that was that was the text when I send you a deal that's. Eight for one return. I expect a check and not a brush off. Literally 15 minutes later, he's on the phone. I think that, again, being authentic to yourself, I mean, that that's you and that's the relationships. But I think that the message really is being authentic to your personality and your personality with that person, whatever that may be. Yeah, and I think true. as, you know, the whole kind of shift of, uh, with the changes in D, D and I and more, yeah. uh, you know, different types of people coming into the workplace, different things are going to resonate, but you still have to be authentic, authentic to who you are, because that is also what builds the trust. So, um, yeah. you know, can yeah. I get away with doing something like that? Probably not, but that's not me. But could I get away with wearing that big ear? No. But there are other things that uh, do suit my, my personality. And I think it's important to discover. I agree. The, the nature of the question about, about the issue of crazy town is some of us have stories about crazy town because we're more of that way. But the real whole session is about being different, right? And being different than other people. So that's the real core of it. So one of the other things, and again, I'm going to go back to Monique because I think she's being humble. Um, her energy was very different. Her energy was the differentiator. It may not be crazy town. It's enormously authentic <laughs> and it looks very different than other people. So you're not in crazy town. You're authentically in new town. Now the yeah. challenge is, of course, it's because you're crazy, but that's not my fault. All right. That's a genetics issue or something else that went on. But you don't look like anybody else, right? And so that's good, I guess. Yeah. No, I mean, you know what? 
you know, at that point, I think Mark, uh, we all discussed this situation where the filter is getting lower and lower. I've never really truly, after I kind of got over my immigrantitis, right? And, you know, everyone was like, you, you don't belong here. You're not good enough. You're not smart enough. You're not English American enough. You're not any of those things. Once you get over that shit, you're free. And then it doesn't matter what people think of you. I don't give a what people think. I don't care. I'm going to do what's right. I'm going to say it like it is. I'm going to say it as with as much respect as I can or as much respect as you've earned. <laughs> and then you do what you will with that. I'm not for everybody, but I'm okay saying that. And I will say that. Look, I'm not for everybody. You have to be able to hear what you need to hear, not what you want to hear. If you want somebody that's going to tell you what you want to hear, don't hire me because I am incapable of delivering that for you. I, I think that's also self-confidence. So, you know, when I hear it in Mark and Monique and in Tom, is really the self-confidence of what you have, what you're selling, what you're able to offer, the value that you can bring, and that authenticity in that confidence really comes out. And I think that's what is really attractive to the buyer. I think maybe, Tiffany, your authenticity that sounds different than everyone else um, is you're funny. Yeah, she's very funny. You're confident enough in these highly regulated, um, be very, very safe, you know, structured environments to be authentic enough to just be funny. Now, I'm not talking Bozo the Clown funny. I'm talking about relevant jokes and commentary and et cetera that says, I'm confident enough in what we do and what we say and in myself that we're here and we're talking. And everybody else is trying to, to sound highly safe and et cetera. And I don't have to. I'm you have an much. incredible poise also. You have like a, um, an aura about you that's very much in control. So when you sit down at the buyer's table with a, with a seller or vendor or whatever, they have to be like sitting up a little straighter and thinking about their vocabulary because – you don't want to be a slacker in front of you. Like that's how, that's what happens, you know? So I think just by being in the room, you elevate the IQ, literally. So that's going to be your, your authentic self shows up like that. And then the buyers have to match you for the tone, the, the delivery that, that like calm, cool, collected, but do not F with me thing that's coming here. You know what I mean? Well, Thank you for those for those comments. No, it's true. It's true. It's true. Added benefit of being true. Yeah, there you go. I can give you one example of stupid, crazy, crazy. I did some research on like the craziest marketing, you know, ad campaigns I could find in the in the business. And there was <laughs> one um, radio rock station gave away free air guitars. They had this, these huge billboards with arrows, right, pointing down to please take one. And there, and, and people did, you saw videos of people doing double takes of like, what? And so they did billboards, they did things on their building in the uh, city, all free air guitars, got a lot of play. And then there, the other thing that I thought was out of control funny was Ikea did a, oh my God, a, an ad that you had that operated like a pregnancy test and it was selling cribs. So if you used it as a pregnancy <laughs> test and you put, you were positive, you got a coupon for $300 off the crib. 
brilliant. I honestly. So this ad could change your life, is what it, they said. Like this ad could change your life, and they, and then you could use it as a pregnancy test, which is pretty. Clever. I'll pay them a hundred dollars if I can assemble anything I buy from them uh, within an hour. You know, I, yeah, I, know, I, right? I can't do it. You know, it's so easy that uh, they they give you pictures. I, so here's, I want to wrap up this. This is what I heard about Crazy Town. First of all, Crazy Town was was kind of just a hook statement about what we're doing. Uh, what we hear about this is it has to be authentic, right? It has to be confident and relevant, and it has to break uh, what they refer to as break standard, right? Where the standard in whatever is expected in the marketplace, it has to break that. It doesn't have to shatter it, but it has to it has to break it. You know, whether it's by humor or it's by energy or it's by putting the gold uh, on on the table. Bags of gold. Or it, it goes with the idea of, I'm sorry, if you don't want to double the size of your company, go talk to somebody else. There's a whole bunch of people that will do it for less and they'll be able to get you, you know, to, you want a 4% increase, you know, just grab a cardboard thing, sit in the, the corner of uh, streets and it says, we'll achieve 4% for less money than anyone else, you know, and you'll be able to be a competitor of mine. So I think that that wraps up the idea of crazy town. Good session. Uh, we're going to go on to episode four and uh, uh, looking forward to doing that. We're going to cover a couple of different things than we normally do because we're going to speak a little bit about how process affects sales individuals and sales teams to get more sales. Uh, and when it works, because uh, we've seen it work, everybody here has seen it work, and when it just doesn't. So thanks, everybody, for uh, we're going to wrap episode three. Thanks. We'll see you next time. Ciao. Bye. See ya. Ciao, ciao. Thanks for listening to the Big Sale Illuminati podcast. If you like this episode, give us a thumbs up and let us know in the comments. Also, be sure to subscribe to the podcast on whatever platform you're listening on. Until our next episode, best wishes on your big sales.